Good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we are continuing in our study in the book of John, the gospel of John. Uh, it has been an incredible journey so far, and we've got quite a ways to go. Uh, if you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to uh, either go to our Facebook page or get online on our church website and listen to the last couple of messages. Uh, as I mentioned a, a, a few weeks ago, uh, John took the first 11 chapters or so to tell us about the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And the last 10 chapters are basically all about the last six days of his ministry. So there's a lot of stuff that's crammed in there. And uh, this morning, we're picking up right where we left off um, last week. So I thought I would uh, open simply by asking you um, a question. Uh, I put it in the uh, weekly update this week as well because I thought it's a very thought-provoking question. And that is, how would you feel... If you knew that one of your closest companions was going to betray you and one of your close friends was about to repudiate you, add to that you're about to be arrested, about to be beaten, and about to be killed. And all of that takes place in less than 24 hours. I can't imagine you would be too excited about that. It would be something that would be extremely troubling, but that's exactly what was facing Jesus uh, in our text this morning, and he faced it for us. He was willing to endure betrayal and willingly went to the cross for our salvation. So this morning, as we look at uh, John chapter 13, the rest of that chapter, I want us to see it through the lens of the fact that, that the gospel story is really a story of love and betrayal. Now, uh, we're still in the upper room uh, as where we were last week, and we pick up the story here in verse 21 of chapter 13, Jesus having washed his disciples' feet and having instructed them and, and given them instruction on how to live and how to lead with humility Jesus now prepares his disciples uh, by telling them things in advance so that they would be fortified for what is to come. Namely, Jesus tells them that he will be betrayed, he will be glorified, and he will be denied. And in telling his disciples these things, and and you see it repeatedly through Scripture where Jesus tells them things in advance so that you would believe, so that they would remember down the road that Jesus had said these things. And here he is demonstrating that not only does he know the future, he's in control of the future. And because Jesus knows all things and is in control of all things, we have the confidence that we need to trust him in all things. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be our teacher and our guide here this morning. Speak through me, encourage our hearts as we look at this passage of scripture, as we learn more about you. And then, Lord, help us to trust you even more. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So this morning, it's my hope that our faith is going to be strengthened, that we're going to be encouraged as we see Jesus reveal his betrayer, instruct his disciples, and predict Peter's denial. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 13. Uh, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, and we'll put some of the scripture here up on, on the screen but uh, Jesus alluded um, to, uh, G, uh, to his betrayer back in uh, verse 10 and in verse 2, um, or excuse me, verse 10 and verse 18 of this chapter. But in this particular text that we're going to be looking at, we see that Jesus actually reveals who the betrayer is to his disciples. So verse 21 says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And then one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked uh, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Notice that word troubled. We encountered this word in the previous chapter. It's the Greek word tarasso, and it literally means to be in great mental anguish or distress. It's indicative of being afflicted. And so Jesus is once again troubled greatly here. And the, the, the first thing that popped in my mind as I saw this was just that because Jesus was troubled in this way, I am comforted in my troubles. Because most of us, if we were honest, we would say there have been times in our life where we have experienced great mental anguish when we have been distressed, and when we have been afflicted. And as I looked at this, I'm thinking anyone who has ever felt like this has got to come away taking comfort in knowing that Jesus knows how we feel. In fact, the Bible tells us that we do not have a a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He's, He's been tempted in every way such as we have, he understands what, it, what it's like to be weak, to be hated, to be rejected. And obviously, in just a few hours, he's going to understand what it's like to be killed at the hands of those who hate you. But then Jesus goes on and he tells his disciples why he's troubled. See that? One of them will betray him. That's a troubling thought. Last week we looked at Luke's gospel. And if you remember, Luke gave us a little bit more information that when Jesus uh, mentioned that there was one in their midst who would betray him, they all began to ask one another, well, who is it? I don't know. Who do you think it is? And they, they were questioning each other, playing detective. But here John simply um, says that they looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, remember, John does not refer to himself in his gospel by name. 
he refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the disciple in whom Jesus loved. So verse 23 makes it clear that John is one of the two disciples that are sitting or reclining closest to Jesus. That's why Peter asks John to ask Jesus who it was. So John is one of the two that are reclining next to Jesus. Let's continue reading in verse 26. So Jesus answered, it is to he, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then afterwards he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So it appears that Judas was the other disciple that was sitting or reclining next to Jesus. This is an amazing picture when you think about it. Two disciples closest to Jesus. One is the beloved disciple. The other is a traitor. And up to this point, Jesus is the only one who knew that Judas would betray him. Now, John knows as well. And evidently, he didn't have time to tell Peter and the rest of the disciples uh, because they all thought Jesus had given him an assignment, that he had given Judas and Aaron to run. That's what they were thinking. But the reality is, is Judas had already decided in his heart to betray Jesus. We know from verse 2 of chapter 13 that Judas was already under the influence of Satan. Verse 2, if you have your Bibles, you can see it there. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, but to betray him. So Judas had already gone, made the deal to betray Jesus. He was already under the the power and the influence of the devil to do his bidding. But then in verse 27, we read something else. We read these words, Satan entered him. So first, the devil planted wicked thoughts into his heart. And now the wicked one enters into him. Now, it's one thing here for us to be enslaved to our sin and to be under the influence of, you know, spiritual forces of evil, but to be possessed by the devil himself tells you how important Judas was to Satan's diabolical plan. He was leaving nothing to chance And what is so remarkable about this story is that Jesus always knew that Judas would betray him. 
There wasn't ever a time that Jesus didn't know that this was going to happen. And, and the thing about it is, it's not, not only did he know this, he didn't tell a soul about it. Nobody knew but Jesus. If you go all the way back to John chapter 6, we read these words. Jesus said, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I mean, you would think the disciples would have had a clue at that point. Jesus comes out clearly and says, one of you has, is a devil. But you, you never see any kind of discussion, any kind of questioning about who that might be back then, but now you do. Imagine being with Judas for three years, seven days a week, all the while knowing that here is a man who in three years' time will betray you. And his betrayal will lead to your death. It, it's hard to fathom. And, and really, in a sense, Jesus' silence protected Judas. Him not mentioning who the betrayer was early on actually protected Judas. I mean, can you imagine if the sons of thunder and company got wind of this, what might have happened? They might have stoned him to death. But Jesus knew that Judas had a role to play in the Father's redemptive plan. So he carried the burden alone. And I, I can't fathom how he did that. I can't fathom how he can come to the upper room and share this meal with him and then wash his feet even. But one thing we've got to be crystal clear on is that Jesus was not surprised by Judas's actions. He wasn't surprised by the devil. Jesus is God. He has all power, all authority, he is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He is sovereign over all things, including his own betrayal. And because Jesus knows all things, and because he is in control of all things, we have the confidence to trust him in all things. You can trust him when you are betrayed by your spouse or a good friend or when you are slandered or maligned or accused falsely of wrongdoing. You can trust him when the prognosis is grim, when your kids don't seem to want to walk with Jesus, when you're laid off or fired from your job or when your life savings just disappears, when a parent gets dementia or dies, when life seems out of control, we need to remember that Jesus not only knows all things, he's in control of all things. Therefore, we can trust him in all things. 
John concludes this section about Judas with the words, and it was night. And I think these words are significant. I mean, they almost seem to jump off the page at you. The story's being told, and then all of a sudden we get a chronological reference, and it was night. And I think John is telling us something here because these these words are really a part of one of John's themes throughout the book, and that is the theme of light and darkness. We've seen it repeatedly. Back in John chapter 1, he wrote, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John then goes on to tell us that Jesus is the true light that came into the world. And then a little bit later, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think it's very significant. And, and, and Matt Carter in his commentary in Exalting Jesus and John said this, and, and again, better than I could say it. He wrote, when Jesus walks out of the candlelit room into the dark street, he's walking away from the light of the world. As the door shuts behind him, his fate is sealed. He's turned his back on the only source of life. This is the end of Judas. He chose darkness over light. He chose death over life. What a sad commentary on this man's life. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ? This is the question that's before you. Will you embrace the light or will you walk out into the night, into the darkness? Make no mistake, everybody in this room this morning, everybody watching on television, you have to make a choice. You have to decide when we walk out of here this morning, every single one of us will have made a decision. We, we will have decided to either embrace the light or we have decided to walk into the night. There is no third option. Sometimes we'd like to think we can put that stuff off till later. Right now, I want to enjoy my life. And Jesus tells us that today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed a tomorrow. So Jesus reveals who his betrayer is. But not only does he do that, he also instructs his disciples. And he tells them several things, but a a couple of the things he tells them is that he is leaving them. He is leaving them. Look at verse 31. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
little children. Yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. If you look at the bold type on the screen, um, you'll notice that five times in two verses, Jesus speaks of his glorification. And as we learned last week, he's referring to his death, which you don't naturally think of when it comes to glorification. The first thing that comes to my mind is his resurrection. And he is glorified in his resurrection, but he is also glorified in his death. And he alludes to it again here in verse 33, when he says, in a little while I am with you, you know, uh, and, and then uh, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus here is predicting more than just his death, of course. Um, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John 16. I'm going to turn over there myself, read some additional verses here that are related. We'll come to this, obviously, in just a few weeks, but John 16, verse 16 tells us that the disciples, after Jesus said what he said here in verse thir- uh, chapter 13, still didn't understand him. So starting there in verse 16, says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been brought into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus is not only predicting his death, he's predicting his resurrection. They will see him again. Jesus again, is demonstrating that he knows all things, that he's in control of all things, and we can have confidence knowing that we can trust him in all things. Another thing that Jesus tells them here is that they must love one another. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, when you look at the first part of verse 34, you have to ask, is this really a new commandment? Because if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find it there. In fact, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what does Jesus mean? And in what sense is this a new commandment? And I think there are several reasons why we would consider it a new commandment. First of all, I think it's because this kind of love is rooted in Jesus's love for us. It has a different source. It flows from him. They are to love one another just as Jesus loved them. So Jesus' love is now the standard. Whatever the standard was before, it is now Jesus' love for them. And not just for them, for us as well. Jesus is our standard Second, I think it's new because of the cross. Jesus didn't just die so that we could be forgiven. He died to make us a new creation. He died to recreate us into the image of God, to restore the image that was marred by sin. He died to give us a new heart and a new spirit within us. He died to empower us to do what we could not do in our own flesh. We have been born again and empowered to love others as Christ has loved us. If Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, that would not be possible. He made it possible to love like this. And I think a third reason that it's a new commandment is because it is the defining characteristic of God's people. This command was not given to the world. It was given to his disciples. It applies only to Jesus' disciples and it's the mark of every true Christ follower in the church. And you can clearly see it in verse 35. I'm going to quote the Christian Standard Bible here because I just like how it's written. It says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. There were a lot of rabbis with a lot of disciples. But it's by this kind of love that people will recognize that we are Jesus' disciples. It's a different kind of love. And he says here, they'll they'll know that you are my my disciples if you love one another. You know, we, we talk about the need for apologetics, which is the the branch of theology which deals with the intellectual defense of Christianity, and we need that. But in my opinion, the greatest apologetic for the Christian faith is love. It's not being able to look at scientific, philosophical, historical evidences to prove 
that the, tr- that the scriptures are true, that Jesus is who he says he is. The, the real proof is, is when the world looks at us and they see that we actually live what we say we believe. People will not know that you are a disciple of Jesus because you have a Christian t-shirt or a Bible verse tattoo. They won't. They won't know you belong to him because you got a fish sticker on your car. Or you listen to Christian music, no matter how loud you play it. And they certainly won't know that you're a Christian by all the things you don't do. That, that's not the measure of a Christian. They will know you are his disciples when they see you loving the brethren. And how are they going to do that? You ever think about that? It says, by this, all, the, all, will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another? How in the world will they know that we love one another? Unless they see it somehow. You see, seeing us love one another presumes that we're doing it in such a way that the world can take notice. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to go out there on the streets and I want you to feign love for one another. I want you to put it on display so that they can you know, see that. I think he's talking about in the normal, everyday, mundane things of life that if we just live what we say we believe in such a way that we are not ashamed of the gospel, whether it's in the workplace, in the neighborhoods, in our families, wherever it may be, when the world sees us loving one another that way, they will be roused to jealousy. They will see us doing something that they crave. They want to be loved unconditionally. They want to be treated with respect. I think the world is hungry for Jesus and they don't even know it. And we have an opportunity to show Jesus to the world in the way that we treat one another. So I wondered, you know, how in the world are they going to see us doing that if all we do is meet here on Sunday mornings for worship? If all we do is meet together in our holy huddles during the week? We've got to find a way in which to demonstrate our love for each other in a way that those who don't know Jesus can see it in action. I think this would be a great topic of conversation in life group to be honest with you. So if you're in a life group, great, have at it this week. So Jesus instructs his disciples, but Jesus now moves on to a conversation with, with Peter. And here we see that Jesus predicts Peter's denials. Starting there in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You just got to love Peter. He's an interesting character. 
always impulsive Peter. Now he spouts off once again. He already put his foot in his mouth the first time when he was talking about Jesus not washing his feet, but here he does it again. And Jesus said definitively, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. And Peter objects. And I'll give you Paul's paraphrase here. Why not? I can't follow you. I will follow you. I will, I will die for you. Peter doesn't have a clue. Continuing with my paraphrase, will you, Peter? Will you lay your life down for me? Your heart is in the right place, but you don't understand. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will have denied that you even know me. And you'll do so three times. Matthew and Luke shed a little bit more light on this interaction. In Matthew chapter 26, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Peter is arguing with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, you're wrong. I won't deny you. Even if everyone else falls away, I will not fall away. Never. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Peter is full of pride. I, I love his heart, but it's full of pride. He thought he knew better than Jesus. He thought he was better than all the other disciples. Even if they fall away, I won't. He thought he could handle it. He thought he was above falling away. You know, there's a scripture that says that if any man thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. I don't think Peter knew that verse. He made the same mistake we often make. He overestimated his strength and he underestimated his sin. Oh, I'll never do that. That won't happen to me. That can never happen. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Lines like that from people only to see them fall flat on their face. I remember reading a book uh, a while back by Gordon MacDonald called Rebuilding Your Broken World and he basically tells the story of, of his failure and how the devil ensnared him and at the very beginning of the book uh, he mentions that he was asked this question, and the question was simply this, was that if Satan were to blow you out of the water, how would he do it? 
And his response was, well, I don't know. I suppose he would do it in a lot of different ways, but I know there's one area that he would not be able to do it. He couldn't touch me in this area, and that is in the area of my personal relationships because I am as strong as you can get in that area, something to that effect. And within months, that was the very area in which he fell. And he goes on to say that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. We, we can be strong in an area and still fall in that area. I mean, Scripture says bad company corrupts what? Good morals. So you can have good morals and you can still fall. There's a reason why Scripture says flee sexual immorality and youthful lusts. You don't stand toe-to-toe with sin and temptation and box your way to victory. Scripture says you're to flee. You're to resist temptation. You're to run from it. We We don't dare overestimate our strength. Nor do we underestimate the power of sin within us and the power of temptation that is external to us. There's a couple of more lessons we should take away from Peter's interaction with Jesus. <laughs> the first, somewhat humorous, never argue with Jesus. It's his losing proposition. Never argue with Jesus. Second, trust and obey. Jesus told Peter and the others they cannot follow him now. They, they can't come. And Peter got in trouble because he didn't trust Jesus and then he tried to follow him when Jesus said that he couldn't. So if we are to avoid the painful consequences of disobedience, then we must learn to patiently trust and obey. And Peter doesn't realize it, but he is in the crosshairs of Satan. Peter is like Job here. He has no clue that he is the focal point of a cosmic spiritual battle that is going on. And we see that in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 34, if we can advance the screen. It says, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So imagine this now. You're, you're there. You're Peter. Peter has just predicted that, that you will deny him three times. And then he tells you, you're about to be sifted like wheat by Satan. This is not a good news day for Peter. Satan wants his way with him, but Jesus will only allow him to go so far. In fact, Jesus says, I've prayed for you. Don't you just love those words? But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
He's gonna allow Satan to come at him, but only so far. And in the end, his faith will be refined and it will be strengthened. Notice that Jesus says, when you have turned, not if you turn, but when you turn. And he's saying to us that Jesus' prayers are effectual. When he prays for us, for something to happen, we don't have to worry about, is it gonna happen? Is it not gonna, it's gonna happen. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, and it didn't. Peter was not lost. Rather, we will learn that Peter will return in humble repentance and faith. And when he does, he has an important job to do. And that job is to strengthen his brothers. And if you belong to Christ this morning, you have a similar blessing and a similar charge. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And the writer of Hebrews says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. And if God is for us, who can be against us? If Jesus is praying for you, the outcome is, is, is assured. You also have an important job to do. Like Peter, we are to encourage and build up one another in the faith. We're to support one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And we are to share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and we are to make disciples. So Jesus makes it very clear that he can be trusted. He knows the future. He's in control of the future. And we have every reason to trust him for the future, for our future I'm not sure, as I close in thinking about it, I'm not sure how I would have reacted um, or would react still if I knew somebody was about to betray me. If somebody was about to stab me in the back, I don't know how I would react, but I do know that I have someone to look to as a model for how I should respond. Jesus said, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Easier said than done, but that's what, what I need to do. Jesus was about to be betrayed. He was about to be killed. And he was obviously about to be disavowed by one of his closest friends. And yet he endured it all for us, for our salvation the gospel is indeed a story of love and betrayal. And in revealing his betrayer, betrayer, instructing his disciples, and predicting Peter's denials, we have the assurance that Jesus is sovereign over all. 
And because he knows all things, is in control of all things, we have confidence in being able to trust Jesus in all things. So what do you need to trust God for this week? Is it for salvation? For yourself? For a loved one? Is it for your marriage? Your health? Finances? Your kids? Whatever it is, know that he is more than able to deliver you from it and to fulfill all his promises to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for your word. And Lord, I just ask that as we think about these last hours of your life before you surrendered it up on the cross, the Lord, that you endured all of this so that we might have eternal life. And Lord, you have given us an example to follow, not just in the washing of your disciples' feet, but just in how you conducted your life and how you were willing to take the abuse and the rejection and the hatred so that we might have life. Lord, give us that kind of love for one another and for those who have yet to give their hearts and lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.